Welcome to the Cultural Life of Money and Finance, a podcast series based in the University of Leeds, where we're exploring money and finance through the arts and humanities, asking new questions about finance, the global financial system, and financial behaviour in the 21st century, by looking at how money is being and has been thought about in different contexts, across historical, cultural, ethical, religious, social, and material settings. We believe that how we think about money matters. If we're going to have an informed debate about the future of money and finance, how it should play a part in human lives and societies, we need to understand the big picture of how money can be talked about, related to, and represented. So in this podcast series, we're talking with researchers and practitioners from across the arts and humanities to get their perspective on questions relating to the cultural life of money and finance and how the arts and humanities can help shape debate on money in the years to come. In this episode, Matthew Treherne talks to Dr. Jonathan Patterson at St. Edmund Hall at the University of Oxford about his book entitled Representing Avarice in Late Renaissance France, published by Oxford University Press in 2015. They explore the topics of avarice and greed and their connection with money in late medieval Renaissance France, the way physical money was associated with attitudes towards wealth, and debates about the nature of money, credit, and debt. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So Jonathan, thanks so much for speaking to us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's uh, good to be here, albeit remotely on Zoom. But thank you for inviting me to speak to you today about money and as it relates to my work on avarice in 16th century France. I was really interested to talk about this with you because I think that clearly the idea of avarice has got, it's got a long history, a really, really interesting history, a really rich history. Myself, I'm a medievalist, so I know a little bit about avarice in that context, but I was really fascinated to, to learn about your work, to hear a bit more about uh, the main developments in late Renaissance France. Could you tell us a bit about what you see as the main things that are happening in terms of avarice in late Renaissance France, how people were talking about it, thinking about it? Certainly, yes. So the book that I wrote on the subject, Representing Avarice in Late Renaissance France, was framed firstly as a, a word history of the word avarice in French, and so very much drawing on that medieval heritage that you mentioned, and indeed looking further back to Greco-Roman and Christian antiquity and seeing how all that fed into what was talked about, written about in the French Renaissance. So really we're talking 1540s to early 1600s. And the first thing to say is that most of the time people continued to reiterate the same warnings as they always had done. So avarice is always a bad thing and that's coveting other people's goods in in whatever form or shape they take is to be avoided and is sinful and needs to be addressed by a moral or spiritual director, uh, especially if you're a Catholic. And uh, of course, money, which is what's of key importance to us today, 
plays a massive part in all of that. Um, and so much discourse on avarice in the French Renaissance, as in earlier periods, centres on the misuse of money, either by hoarding it or by accumulating too much of it. So that's the sort of, broadly speaking, where money fits into the discussion. Now, within that framework, what I was trying to do was actually take avarice as a starting point for tracing a broader narrative about gender enrichment and status. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that not everyone is avaricious in the same way. So women are avaricieuse in ways that differ from men, in that they tend to hoard, covet different sorts of objects, and that their sphere of avaricious activity, if you like, is a different one. It's uh, the domestic sphere primarily, whereas men go out into the outside world to do their coveting and hoarding, although they also use domestic space. So there's that. Then there's, where does all this discourse on avarice sit in the wider discourses about enrichment? And that's where things really start to get complicated and the lines get considerably blurred, because at this point we introduce a significant socioeconomic dimension that perhaps is something, if not new, certainly emergent in this period. And so some of this you can see in religious texts. I'm thinking of a work by a French theologian called Jean Benedicti called the, the Somme des Pichiers, which is one of these very ancient genre of texts, the, the Summa Peccatorum, but where he outlines in great detail kind of what avaricious behaviour looks like depending on your social standing. So it's all right for a nobleman to possess more wealth than a commoner because it's understood that nobles need money in order to maintain a certain level of what they call honesty, honest, uh, decent standard of living for those of the upper classes. The same level of wealth would not be appropriate for a merchant and certainly not for a peasant. That's kind of how it goes. There's ambiguity there, but the key hinge point, and this applies to both genders, is this question of what the French call ménagerie, which is a sort of translation of the Greek idea of oikonomics, economics. And this is the management of one's household and its resources. And money plays a big part in all this but it's not just about money it's also about one's land if one owns a land portion of land and uh within this sphere of activity women are being recognized as intrinsically able to be what they call bonne ménagère so good uh, managers of domestic goods household wealth and that actually a lot of what used to be called avaricious female behavior is now being redescribed in places, not everywhere, but in places as actually good bon minage, a good stewardship of resources. And so there's this, this interesting area of historical redescription there regarding women. Regarding men, it gets even more complicated because here we get into um, discussions about not only having a certain latitude when it comes to accumulating wealth, so one is allowed to go out and make money, even if one is a noble to, to a degree, but you have to be very careful that it doesn't look like that your sole pursuit is making money. Because as soon as anyone can say that, it's avarice. And so a lot of this comes down to the attitude with which you, that you display in relation to your wealth. And Michel de Montaigne, the great essayist, has lots of very uh, subtle points to make about this. And we can perhaps come back to that. Though there are others of a similar social standing, this sort of affluent, loyally, uh, magistrate class of, of French thinkers, some of whom are ennobled like Montaigne, others who aren't. So there are other people doing similar things with avarice in perhaps a more playful sense. I studied one such writer called Antoine Utman, who wrote a paradoxical defense of avarice, 
in which he explores a lot of these rhetorical borderlines between good management of wealth and avaricious hoarding or ex excessive accumulation. So that it's not just Montaigne, there are others. And then there's, um, when it comes to money, French poetry, particularly that of Pierre de Ronsard, the great Renaissance French poet, is particularly interesting because there you have all kinds of configurations of money and gold and other kinds of wealth as, if you like, quasi-economic resources. So if I, Ronsard, write about money, wealth in a particularly aesthetically pleasing way and present it to you, the king, sort of is a way of me offering you a tangible gift and I'm hoping that you will reciprocate with even more material uh, forms of wealth and so patronage and that sort of thing. So I've said a bit about the sphere of enrichment uh, and all of its different or various different aspects that were explored. And then the question of status. So this relates very closely to both of the other two. And it's, it's a bit like what I was saying earlier about depending on your social standing, then you you allow you're entitled to a certain level of affluence without anyone really picking up on it. But it goes beyond that and it goes into considerations of whether one has acquired formal nobility status through the official channels, so the, the letters patent that one would need to become a noble. Avaricious people are sort of banned from doing that, so to speak. And uh, so it's, it's to do with formal and informal recognition of status. And a lot of the discourse on avarice is really concerning the informal sphere of status and it's, it's represented. So in other words, if you are somebody who has lots of wealth and you appear to be excessively attached to it, then that is demeaning. And that kind of reduces your status in a way that's even worse than if you were to be formally stripped of it in some ways. That's sort of the way the discussion can play out in, in that regard. With regard to the gender aspect, then it, sometimes it's remarked on that noble women are particularly at risk of being avaricious and coveting certain forms of jewellery. And this is tied into a number of debates about sumptuary laws and the amount of wealth one is allowed to display in public, uh, depending on your social standing. And there's, 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 there's a lot of legislation against this in the period, and none of it is enforceable. <laughs> and so there's a socio-political side to that. And then finally, the more abstract side of avarice, which we could describe as non-pecuniary avarice, if you like, would be, and Montaigne is the, the big source of thinking on this, being avaricious with one's time. For instance, it's, he sort of explores how it might be beneficial to work to yourself to hoard your time from other people, for example. And there's also a significant haptic dimension to this. So the way you pick up and cherish your books, which he does a lot of, is said to be a bit like how a miser might covet and hoard and touch his treasures. And so there's an interesting discourse on touch that, that emerges in, in Montaigne in that regard. He also explores his own self as, a, as an avaricious being, Montaigne. And so he, he crafts a life narrative at one stage in the Issy where he tells us that I used to be a miser. I used to be an avaricious and I went through this period of my life where I was excessively attached to my money and I was very anxious about losing any of it uh, or giving any away. But I got out of it. And I'm a, I'm a kind of, if you like, a reformed avalisseur. And I now am a lot less attached to my wealth. I'm a lot less anxious about it. And so he gives us that narrative in one place in the essay. And then he sort of comes back to it later and realises that he hasn't completely lost his avaricious self after all. And this is brought home to him very abruptly in the 1580s when his property is ransacked. And he says, well, I've lost a lot of my wealth now. And 
oh well never mind he gives you a a commonplace from Seneca about not being too attached to wealth and how in the grand scheme of things this isn't going to hurt him and then he sort of reneges from that and he says well actually I I do feel the loss very badly and it hurts me it pinches me like a miser would feel if one of those treasures was taken away and that for me is one of the most telling uh, examples of how if you like quasi avaricious thinking persists in the work of Morten and relates to his experience of wealth in a very material sense and that would of course include his money. I wonder what's going on economically at the time that might be behind some of this. I mean is it a time when you're seeing great fortunes being made very quickly in ways that maybe challenge and disrupt established hierarchies, you know, the, the nobility perhaps threatened by the new wealth of the merchants and so on. Is that, is that part of what's driving this kind of worry about avarice? I think there is a certain degree of economic change, profound economic change that we see in this period, and that all feeds into what's said about avarice. So at a sort of macro level, this would be France's financial crisis. Economic historians now think it goes back into the early 16th century, but it's certainly by mid-century and the latter half of the century, there are a number of signs that all is not well with the French economy. And so we're talking about massive sovereign debts accumulated from very expensive wars with Italy over the first half of the century in particular. Another contributing factor would be the influx of new forms of wealth. So gold and particularly silver in large quantities from Eastern Europe, but also the New World. The wars of religion in France, which are happening from 1562 to 1598, disrupt France economically in a big way because they favour conditions that lead to famine and disease. And also you get you know, a certain degree of ransacking and loss of property. So that's where some nobles start to be really financially threatened in the way that they hadn't been. By and large, the nobility doesn't take the hit in the way that we might assume given what happens in later centuries. On the other hand, you do have merchants making large fortunes in some places. And so this would be in, say, the city of Lyon, where you've got Italians, resident foreign Italians, some of whom will stay on in France for generations, others of whom won't, but who are creating lots of wealth through their business activities. And some do very well financially. And this becomes a source of resentment to the indigenous population. So there are a number of factors one could point to. In a sort of intellectual sense, there's a big debate about what's behind the what we would call inflation and they call enchérissement, the fact that prices are continually rising and what, what it is that's driving that. Now, various theorists have different views on this. Is it to do with the money of account that merchants use? So this is the livre tournois, that's uh, the accounting money that doesn't have a kind of physical anchoring so much as coins do. So you have, for instance, a debate mid-century between Jean Baudin, the famous political philosopher. Uh, he also writes about economics and someone called Malestroit about this problem of inflation and what's behind it. So is it the abstract money of account that's to blame? That's what Malestroit thinks. And that's, you know, it's accountants who are essentially to blame then. Or is it that we got too much physical money? an abundance of coins and monies, as um, Boudin thinks. And Boudin thinks that particularly because of the psychological and social factors involved with having an abundance of money. People will want to display it more and accumulate more and more of it in that sort of psychological and social sense. And this is where avarice kind of fits into to all of that. 
And this is a debate that goes on for about 60 years or so until various people in the Cour des Monnaies, so the, the Royal Mint in France, um, come up with something that resembles more like a modern economic explanation of the situation, to which I would defer to Jotham Parsons' great book, Making Money in 16th Century France. He's an economic historian who's worked on that in some detail. Yeah, it's interesting how, how those concerns coincide with, I suppose, a concern about the psychology of one's relationship to money. Interesting how Montaigne, the great writer who reflects on his own self, perhaps more than anyone has done um, ever before, is also going to be worried about, you know, his relationship to money. He was going to want to reflect on it, at least. And also, as you were describing earlier, you know, the problem with, with avarice is not necessarily the quantity of money that one has per se, but it's one's relationship to it. And there's, there's something important, isn't there, about, I suppose, about that, the coincidence of these broader economic trends, worries about what we might call the monetary supply, the place of money in society, mm -hmm with this kind of turn yeah. to reflection on the psychology that underlies the relationship with money. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I think the two are certainly interlinked in ways that people in the period uh, were struggling to understand and whether problems of monetary supply were a brute reality that uh, we're going to, that was just beyond anybody's control or whether um, a lot of the, the issues were actually in the mind, as it were, or in one's perception of oneself, at least at a personal level. So whilst the economy might be generally in a bad way, am I personally affected by that? And Montaigne eventually says, yes, I am. Although a lot of his earlier philosophizing on the subject would be of a stoic flavor and therefore leading him to think, well, uh, I can't master the terrible turmoil that my country is going through but I can at least have a go at self-mastery and that would include uh, sitting light to my money and then you know, as, as he reflects he discovers just how hard it is to do that in practice um, and even when one seems to be making progress events can happen such as his uh, property being besieged and ransacked that again make you think just how much the uh, your, your, your values and your worldview uh, actually works in practice and Montaigne is probably the most reflective example of that that I can think of in this period given the huge amount of uh, emphasis he puts on his own experience especially in his later writings. And you mentioned the idea of uh, just the amount of physical money that there was kind of yeah. knocking around and uh, yeah. you know as you know one of the things that we're really interested in our project is understanding the ways in which I suppose mm -hmm. the the relationship that people have had to physical money, that societies have had to physical money, might cast some light on the current situation that we're in, where, you know, there are clearly enormous shifts, both in terms of personal yeah. individual behaviour, in relation to cash, to our own cash, but also to the moves towards more digital forms of finance that are taking place kind of within the system. Yeah. I just, I wonder what in you know, late Renaissance France, how this sense of, you know, the physicality of money plays into these debates about avarice? Yes, it's, it's, it's a very good question. On the one hand, you have a lot of recycled ancient thinking about this, and the ancients did have quite a lot to say about not constantly having this haptic connection with coins. So you've got strands of Christian discourse that link that with devilry and even the idea that coins pass through the body and can be defecated. <laughs> there is that in the background, but it's more to do with thinking about very carefully your day-to-day -to -day touching of money 
that is perhaps relevant here. And so uh, this particularly concerns people whose job it is to handle money, so merchants. So merchants are constantly attacked for uh, doing the wrong kind of handling of money, as in they, they wait until nobody's looking and then siphon some of it off into their own pocket in a sort of Chaucer's Miller type way. Or they simply don't pay attention enough to the, the accounting side of things. And I haven't really looked at this in any great detail, but there are certainly concerns amongst merchant accounters that people don't understand how to do, say, double book accounting. So that's perhaps taking us away from the physicality of money, but in a way that shows that that's the way the economy is moving in that period. We're moving away from a, well, a barter economy, or that's been happening for a long time, but in the 16th century you get a much greater consciousness of the notion that money is itself a resource that can be bought and sold. Um, and this particularly occurring at merchant fairs, the sort that happen in Lyon, for instance, four times a year, but in other big French cities as well. And it's here that a lot of the actual changing of money gets done in a sort of frenzied period of economic activity and debts are settled um, or indeed postponed uh, using these credit letters, letters of credit. And so that introduces another sort of material form of monetary exchange, which can be problematic, sort of a, a debt that's constantly deferred from fair to fair, and when does it ever actually get resolved? Um, and that gets picked up in French literature in the Renaissance. And also with that comes a sort of moral discourse about being credit worthy. Are you somebody who's reliable at repaying debts? If so, you're likely to be offered further loans. If you're not, then you won't be. So at that level, again, there's this sort of, I suppose, move away from the physicality of money to a more abstract way of um, handling money that brings with it other social problems and e as well as economic ones. These are things that I touched on at the fringes of my book rather than uh, more centrally. In, in terms of theatre, which I haven't said anything about yet, so lots of people know Moliere's play Lavar, which is all about a miser who hoards money and loses a cash box with 2,000 gold EQ and it's all eventually restored to him. Um, that sort of humour, very ancient, goes back to Plautus in antiquity. There's a French sort of 16th century version of that play that Moliere uses. And so there is this theatrical mileage in the notion of uh, a bourgeois, somebody who is in merchant and accounting professions, having a strong box of money, very physically and uh, that object being sought after by various members of his household uh, and he, him trying to hide it from them. It's a very ancient source of humour and continues to be. I'm not sure that necessarily connects very precisely with the wider economic developments we see in the period. Perhaps more so in the case of Moliere, actually, which is in the later half of the 17th century, where there's, there's some tailoring of the of people's social status to to the plot of the hoarded money box, less so in the 16th century. There is a little bit of money as object in French theatre that I've looked at. There's various figures of speech that come into French, the French language that are to do with money. Um, money de singe, monkey money being one of them. So there is this there's kind of literary appropriation of the monetary object that gets picked up on in the 16th and on into the 17th century. How is all this relevant to today? Well, I think the, the connection is fairly remote, but not non-existent. And it would be 
what happens at the point where the monetary object disappears from view very, very literally, uh, or from touch very literally, I think that would be an interesting area to explore. So in a time like ours, where a lot of us aren't carrying so much cash, and transactions are done digitally on your phone or whatever, um, that can create, I suppose, a sense of dissonance um, and a disconnection from money in a way that, although it has no direct equivalent in previous ages, was nonetheless being explored in earlier ages with regard to the technology developments they did have. So at the point where money starts to be invisible, people's relation to it does subtly shift. And that, that, that there is this level of anxiety and fear that comes in around that, particularly at the macro level and in debates amongst the experts, as I was alluding to earlier. But also, I think, coming back to Montaigne, actually, he talks about how it was his willingness to hand over the management of his sort of physical finances to others, namely his wife, but also his servants, that helped, if you like, if not cure the avarice, certainly displace it from its kind of driving seat in his life. So there is a there is perhaps a, something maybe to explore there, the notion that the more one is willing to allow others into one's financial management, uh, the less stressful it is. I don't, I'm speculating here, but perhaps there is. Because um, the, the, the controlling aspect of avarice is one that's denounced loud and clear, certainly in my period. And it, it often does relate very directly to the handling of one's money and the unwillingness that people have to allow anyone else to get physically near the monetary object. Well, I can see so many interesting resonances also in terms of the, the whole idea of credit worthiness, obviously, you know, the forerunners of the Experian credit report that uh, <laughs> emerging at the time and, um, you know, the, this kind of more complex financialization, I suppose, that takes place in terms of the move away from physical coins towards other forms of financial instrument and financial transaction. It's actually Rabelais in the 1540s, who has perhaps, well, certainly the funniest, but also a very complicated um, uh, one of these paradoxical encomia, so a praise of debts, which is very interesting to read about, you know, why debt is a good thing, that we should be aiming for a society where everybody is a debtor to somebody else. It's this topsy-turvy logic that gets explored in that text. And it's, it's a dialogue as well. It's sort of, Panos sort of has his specious arguments about kind of why debt's a good thing. Then Pontagrel says, well, you haven't convinced me of any of this. So debt's a bad thing. And here are the reasons why. And then we just left to make the mind up whether there's anything in what Panos is saying. And there's a social, uh, an economic historian that's done an analysis that shows quite convincingly that actually what Panos is describing is not that removed from debt portfolios in the 1540s or so when at the time I was writing. So person A lends money to person B and person C also lends money to one or both of them. It gets very complicated. <laughs> um, and so you get this very intricate network of creditors and debtors and it becomes very difficult to say who owes what to whom. Oh, it's absolutely wonderful to it's the 16th century version of the, the complicated financial arrangements that we, of course, you know, we associate with the 2008 financial crisis, the credit default swaps yes. and um, all of that. I just wanted to finish up with the idea of fear, which I know is important yeah. to your work. So the idea that avarice is in some sense associated with fear. Could you just explain yeah. what that relationship is? 
Right, so this is the psychological stroke spiritual dimension of avarice, and it's present in both pagan and Christian thinking on the subject, and ability to live a life that's somewhat in balance with everything around oneself, and money is an object that can destabilise one's sense of harmony or ataraxia, one's sense of calm. And the avaricious person is an extreme example of this. Um, someone who's constantly displaying signs of anxiety because of their obsessive focus on their money. And this, this exhibits itself in a number of behavioural tells, if you like. Fidgeting being one of them. A shifty sort of glancing around, uh, that sort of thing. In the Christian line of thinking, it's to do with one spiritual health. And so various places in the Bible talk about avarice as, uh, in terms of spiritual death. So greed, which is, uh, is idolatry in Ephesians. And so this is making the point that um, it's not only bad for you now, it's going to be really bad for you in eternity um, because avarice is a, a form of idolatry that completely cuts one off from a healthy spiritual relationship with God. Um, and so you get a lot of this in Christian thinking on, on avarice in the period. And it's tied into various passages of scripture that are fairly predictable. The two in the New Testament from Colossians and Ephesians. Uh, and then there's a third one, which is from first letter to John, which identifies three species of concupiscence or concupiscentia. And these are, well, there's some kind of interchangeability, but avarice is one of them. Lust is another and, and ambition. But various theologians debate about exactly the unit, but that trio of three seems to be an important framework for thinking about avarice. The seven deadly sins is interestingly less present in, or at least the material that I looked at for my book. It's not to say it's not there, but um, the notion of pride and avarice being the sort of the big two and then various others, not so present in humanistic discourse on avarice, as far as I'm aware. And that was a big discovery for, for me. Um, I was expecting to see a lot more of it. But going back to the notion of Fear is closely related to that in all of these traditions is the notion of enslavement. So the more you are afraid of the consequences of losing your money, the more you become enslaved to the object. And certain Protestant thinkers link that to the idea of worshipping idols. So I took one of these images for the front cover of my book, which shows a woman worshipping the golden calf of Exodus that's another side in which you could trace the notion of fear actually is in the artistic representation of avaricious people and how anxiety are inscribed in their anxiety or sort of crooked scheming tends to be uh, aesthetically represented in a number of renaissance artworks not something i'm a particular expert on but it's it's there if you were to look at that fear can become derisable. <laughs> um, it can become a laughable, as in the case of Moliere's play Navarre. But generally speaking, the emphasis is, is on fear as something to be pitied about the avalisure or something to be addressed kind of and taken away. <laughs> I suppose the only other thing to say, this is going back to one of the big themes in my book, was just challenge the Protestant ethic, the notion that it's very much a Protestant economic discourse that is the big driver of change. That's not something I found at all in my research on avarice that, yeah, there's nothing really in the Protestant writings I looked at that veer uh, conspicuously towards money-making as being a good thing in itself. I think 
that comes in considerably later. And indeed, in my study, the most significant attempts to re-describe avarice as something less than sinful come from Catholic writers. So the two I mentioned earlier, Montaigne and Antoine Uttmann, um, although in both cases, there's a lot of caveating and caution around any such re-description. So yeah, there we are. That's my sort of big intellectual history contribution <laughs> to all of this is that, you know, don't just try and map on a Weberian Protestant ethic framework to the study of the past. It doesn't always work. That's a great note to end on, I think, and an important kind of uh, counsel for anyone wanting to look at the history of money in this period is wonderful. Thank you. It's been such a rich conversation. I really appreciate it, Jonathan. Well, thank you very much again. I've uh, enjoyed being here and uh, thank you for the, the opportunity. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about the Cultural Life of Money and Finance project, please visit our website at culturallifeofmoney.leads.ac.uk. Follow us on Twitter at Cultural Money and subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or other major podcast platforms. We're grateful to the Leeds Arts and Humanities Research Institute and to the Leeds Creative Lab scheme at the Cultural Institute for their support for our project. And above all, we'd like to say thanks to you for listening.